the Marvel Handbook A3, Alpha Primitives, American Eagle, Anaconda, and Anger the Screamer. All we have to do is decide who goes and who stays to hold off a wave of primates and hide the terrible. I'm a legal machine. With me is... Senor Fix-It. You can find me on Stitcher. And if you're listening to this, you already know where to find me because you're subscribed to this feed, hopefully. Today, we're going to cover Alpha Primitives. Alpha Primitives. Gosh darn slave labor. Genetically engineered slave labor for the Inhumans. They are all about 5 foot 7 inches tall. Live for 42 years. Asexual. With green eyes. Is that what I said? Did I, I miss think that? so. Okay. Who was the creator of them? It wasn't a celestial. Oh, I thought you were talking about the comic book creators. No, 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 no. You're Stanley and Jack Kirby, I believe. Yeah, but no, the well, creators, that order. they said that... The Inhumans created them, right? So they can focus more on No, the Inhumans at the time, they wanted the Inhumans to seek knowledge, so they created the Alpha Primes to do all the... Avadar. Yeah. Geneticist Avadar. Is he, was he one of the Celestials, or what was he? He's a- Avadar. I didn't do that. Uh, he'd be A-V. We're on A-L. I don't want to do a spoiler. Yeah. Avadar was a geneticist of the Inhuman species living 4,000 years ago. A lot of these characters always have Celestial roots somewhere, because Celestials created the Kree anyway, because remember the Celestials are the ones that are seeding the Marvel Universe with life. And then if they think it's great, they give a thumbs up. If they don't, and they start all over. Wanting the Inhumans to focus on broadening their knowledge, he genetically engineered these... A subclass. Yeah. Uh-huh. Slave class. Because, yeah. again, they have no culture. Yeah. They have no well, recreation. Who, who writes the book on whether or not they have a culture? That's right. True. Because this could all be Inhuman. But, again, don't they have the mentality of, like, a six-year-old? Yeah. They, they give them the vocabulary yeah, of, a, of a small child. So, I mean, they might want to go out, outside with magnifying glasses and burn ants and that's well, about it. that's just what they give them. It's because they limit their... It, have you tried to teach well, again, an alpha primitive? You know, you're only as good as your education system, right? <laughs> how do you keep the poor? Poor. You keep them stupid. So they're poor? I mean, or, I mean, how do you keep the stupid stupid? You keep them poor? I don't know. Look, it's some... <laughs> in circle. Potato, potato. They were made for menial work. So service industries, farming. Now, the sad thing is they're all male. So there's no female alpha primes. They're only made through cloning. They're, they're, they're primitives. Or not primitives. Prim- oh, my bad. They're cloned and it's illegal to clone anymore. So there's only 500 in existence. They I didn't think it put a number. It just said their numbers were dwindling because they live for 42 years. No, it actually years. does. It says in the beginning. It doesn't matter because it's an old entry. So okay. they're probably off dead now anyway. Yeah. They have tattooed born to die. They're, yes. So the alpha primitives have an expiration date and they're no longer producing this 42 product. years apparently. Yeah. So have either of you ever encountered these characters in a comic book? Man, I don't know. I mean, I read I, the I read the Jay Lee, uh, Paul, was it Paul Jenkins? Paul Jenkins, yeah. 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 Well, Jay were were the alpha primitives in that? Yeah. Yep. Were they? I am completely. They did appear in the horrible Inhumans TV show. Actually, I'm not so sure that's I thought they correct. did. My recollection from the television series was that the in 
humans or the, the members of that race that did not manifest superpowers had to uh, engage in menial labor, most especially mining. And uh, there did not have any deviants that I saw in, although they, no, deviants is celestials. I can't keep track, right? Deviants is celestial, uh, is uh, e- Eternals? Maybe. Eternals, maybe. Also, right. wait, so these there's these groups all had like sub or uh, classes that they used for slave labor? I'm not, well, I don't know if deviants were a subclass. They were ostracized, I think, though. Mm-hmm. So on the TV show, it was they were still oh, like, okay. regular people who procreated and had families and stuff. And that was actually where the conflict was, is they were an essentially a, a slave class, or probably more of a serf class, like a serfdom mm-hmm. for the most part. So when we saw the alpha primitives in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it was actually on Marvel's Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. The way they were represented there, though, you may recall in Season 3, they had the Hive, this creature that was like a deified... Yeah, 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 I remember, yeah, yeah. Essentially. In that other universe. And, and they created these clones that were uh, like zombies, essentially. They are like mostly faceless zombies, and they swarmed the Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. toward the end of Season 3. Do you remember that? Oh, when they attacked the base. Yeah, they, they were basically that's like right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I remember, no, I remember, no, I remember. So that's how they were treated on in the Cinematic Universe. But oddly enough, there are actual alpha primitives in the Marvel Cinematic Universe via Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D., assuming that's remotely canon, although my understanding is that post-snapping, I don't even think they're in the their canon anymore. Why did the Inhumans decide to finally free them at the end? It says in there that they kind of just freed them, and they, and they actually go down there and just check up on them and check on their, you know, make sure everything's okay, because they don't want to leave the tunnels. Like, somebody pointed out that that was horrible, even in, under the circumstances, that was yeah. still really horrible. Because, I mean, they do they do everything they can to dehumanize them in the entry, but well, they're not very smart, they don't procreate, they have no culture, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, they're still slaves, well, you know? Yeah. It, but it's but really they, hard they did to, make a point to say, though, that some of them, it's just like, all they know is work, so and they, they, just, it, they just work. Yeah, on, as soon as they set up free, they're like, okay, so I'm going to go back doing what I was doing before, because like, I don't know anything else. Because it literally says they just went back to things where the things they were before, so. They're the, they're the unsullied. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I think the analogy would be more like they would be like livestock, essentially. Like, they may be humanoid. eat them, fool. <laughs> you think that? No, like, you think they're eating alpha primitive? We don't need horses, but we still need Try the new alpha primitive burger. <laughs> you saw the alpha primitive burger at a I, I thought Whopper? It might be Have you tried the new alpha primitive Whopper? <laughs> No, I'm wondering if maybe it's like some sort of a weird metaphor, some sort of vegan thing, where if they walked upright and looked like humans, would you make them plow your fields? Like, maybe that's what they were going for? I don't know. I've never read any of those appearances. Mr. Fix-It, you read, did you read the, the follow-up uh, miniseries, the one that Jose Ladron did? No. Because they're in that. I read the Paul Jenkins one. They've appeared in a total of 66 comics, roughly, and the majority of the, a, lo- a large percentage of those are reprints of the other comic. Okay. So it's probably only a, like a, handful a of books. few dozen stories, probably, total. And it looks like fairly minor roles in most of them so I, I don't didn't know. Uh, what was the name of uh, Black Bolt's brother Maximus the Mad yeah didn't he yeah. always use them as kind of an army uh, I maybe I, I think in one of the books I read he used some kind of technology to make them a little smarter where he could at least control them in terms of like he could lead them I want an emotion comic right I remember reading something about that reading one of those books because I'm yeah. thinking okay and he's, well, no, he's, down, he's they, down there with them and he's like trying to rile them up so that they can overthrow because again well, they have and, no fear and that was essentially the plot in the TV show with the exception of they were not alpha primitives, they yeah. were sentients, full sentients. Yeah. But they did a motion comic of the J. Lee Paul Jenkins miniseries, right? I believe so, but I've never seen it. Okay, because I, I mean they're in about the last four issues of the miniseries, so probably that played a role. I, I assume that a lot of what happened in that maxi series was the basis for the TV show, so probably. I'll give you a thumbs well, up, I, like a celestial uh-huh. would. I'm, I'm trying to think. So when did this entry come out? Eighty three. Eighty three. So they were already free by eighty three. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. they were introduced in like Fantasy Four Fifty something yeah. so you're talking about 66 or so yeah so maybe. still a good 20 years of slavedom in no, comics I, 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 well remember they only live 42 years so I am I am I am
sparrows, right hand branch, left hand arrow, chasing the dollar in an impala. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Derek WC from History of Comics on Film and Fanholes Podcast, talking about the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. American Eagle. Yeah, Jason Strongbow. This is cool because I should just preface this. I'm the guy on Gimme That Star Trek that was pimping out Jacote on the tier list and everything. I'm always into it when I see Native American superheroes and stuff like that. And I know you were kind of like, I was listening to the episode you guys did about the first appearance of Black Panther. Because for me, like, you know how like Michael Bailey has to explain to his wife about Lori Lamaris? I kind of had that thing with a buddy with Wyatt Wingfoot because I love Wyatt Wingfoot. I think he's super cool. I think he was reading Earth X and he's like, who's this guy? And I'm like, he's Wyatt Wingfoot, but like without any other explanation, you know, and then I sort of had to explain who he was basically that he was Johnny Storm's friend and he was on a Native American reservation and he eventually starts dating She-Hulk. That's why he's in Earth X side by side with Captain America as like a new Falcon and, you know, just kind of explaining like why I thought that was super cool and kind of educating a friend on Marvel Obscura history and everything. And then I had never read read Marvel 2-in-1 Annual 6, his first appearance, until you asked me to do this. And the fact that Wyatt Wingfoot's in that issue totally legitimizes American Eagle for me because he's part of his origin. There's some sense of legitimacy. They're both involved, and it's a character that I knew very well and a character that I guess I'd have to say the first time I was introduced to him and I thought he was super cool in the arc was during Warren Ellis's Thunderbolts. Since I am part of a Thunderbolts podcast, my nefarious plan was not only do I like the characters that we're discussing, but you'll find a lot of these characters are Thunderbolts related, including American Eagle, who was in that Suicide Squad-esque interpretation of the Thunderbolts post-Civil War, where they're, as my buddy Mike likes to say, the Thunderbolts are the man and they're going after like all these unregistered superheroes and stuff in the aftermath of Civil War. He's got a cool rep, and I got to see it as opposed to reading about it, because there's like that one Jason Aaron one-shot and it made me think, I'm super glad I read Scalp now, and then I went back, reread that American Eagle one-shot that Jason Aaron wrote. And I'm like, I totally like sort of see the lineage or the commonality or whatever. And when he shows up in that special, he's, they're kind of like, Jason Strongbow beat up Kazar with one hit, arm wrestled the thing, kicked it that a bullseye, you know, and you're like going down the list of like all the cool things he's done. And it was kind of fun to read that Marvel two and one annual and see some of that stuff firsthand. Warren Ellis pokes some fun at the original costume and everything. So you've got like the Ron Wilson design costume, I think. Okay with it, except for it seemed like he kind of got lumped in with all the contest of champion type heroes of the world, I guess, in that where I noticed a lot of his appearances after that Marvel two and one annual were just these large shots of a conglomeration of heroes fighting some great battle or some assemblage of heroes. You remember when the Incredible Hulk had Bruce Banner's mind and they gave him like a big, big parade and everything. And they're like, dude, you're you're cool, man. You're a hero, Hulk. And, you know, Hulk's like shedding a tear. He's like, I'm a hero. During that, I think one of the heroes way, way, way in the background giving him props was American Eagle. There was a bunch of stuff like that. The first time I had ever seen him was in the Thunderbolts. And as opposed to wearing the original costume, he's in this cool biker outfit. His biker helmet has got that eagle motif. And I guess if I had my dithers, not like they're ever going to do this, but if they were going to make a Marvel Legends of American Eagle, I'd probably, in a move totally counter to my normal way of thinking, I'd probably want the quote-unquote modern version of his outfit as opposed to the quote-unquote classic version. But yeah, I do dig the character a whole bunch. To carry on with that, I'm looking at the artwork and I, I don't think it's the strongest design. I do agree with you that he's a guy who benefited from being modernized. I don't think you could actually say the words classic American Eagle with a straight face because the, as fair drawn, enough. he's drawn... Fair enough, fair enough. Have you seen the American Eagle outfit from Marvel Comics Presents backups? Those are terrible, dude. This makes those look... I mean, like in that, he looks like... um. 
what's the dude from the Muppets that has the, oh, the, eagle, the eagle beat? Right. Yeah, like Sam the Eagle. Imagine American Eagle, but he literally has a spandex outfit and looks like he's got a big beak on his headgear. Oh my gosh. This is Ron Wilson, and I think those backups are done by Ron Wilson. And I always feel bad asking this, and people don't ever really seem to give me a straight answer, but I remember I met Chris Marinin at a con, and you're probably familiar with him from his work on Wonder Woman mm-hmm. and stuff like that. He did a Nova series back in the 90s where everybody had these big giant pecs, and Nova had this big ponytail. Super duper 90s. Did they make you draw like that? Because I know that's not like your regular. Everybody was forced to sort of draw like Dan Panison or Rob Liefeld or something. You see it in all kinds of comics from that era. Even stuff like the Nom. All of a sudden, everybody has thunder thighs and, and all this kind of crazy speed lines and cross hatching for no good reason on their face or whatever. I was looking at some of those Marvel Comics Presents backups. I get what you're saying. This is not the greatest design in the world for this, you know, I know laughably, you know, quote unquote, classic costume for American Eagle. But let me put it this way. If I had tiers of how I want the Marvel Legend to look, it'd be the modern and then this, let, let's call it first appearance, Frank. So we don't have to offend anybody's sensibilities, but let's say first appearance American Eagle and then 90s American Eagle. It's like, you know what I don't want? I don't want the 90s American Eagle. He's got a bandolier with bullets or something and a bunch of pouches and this big Sam the Eagle beak on his mask, which looks super lame. I was trying to actually remember where I knew this character from outside of Ohatmu because as with Who's Who, there's a lot of instances where because I read the reference book more than I read the comic books, there are a lot of characters I know more from the reference book. And until you mention that run of Marvel Comics Presents, yeah, movies, yeah. I wasn't sure that I'd ever read an American Eagle comic book. I actually kind of like the weird little beak thing he had going on, but honestly, I, I because I don't have the reference in front of me, I don't recall much beyond him having that little beak thing on his nose. But I definitely liked it better than this. Liquid Television used to have a stop-motion animated segment about an angry daisy. <laughs> There's a flower that actually would ride a motorcycle and, and start fires and stuff. Are you trying to say that American Eagle looks like El Seed? Is that where you're going with this? I am El Seed. I am the self-proclaimed liberator of the plant population. He looks like he has flowers erupting out of his head. He looks like Daisy Man. And then aside <laughs> from all the little feathers along his pants, I don't see anything of real distinction in the costume here. So I'd actually would favor the Marvel Comics Presents suit over this one. But I also agree that the modern look is much much less horrible. But that's because of the profile of the Ohatmu book here. If you look at that little panel in the right-hand corner, I mean, he doesn't look like Daisy Man there, does no, he? True, like, true. I don't know that that's something you'd necessarily want to wear into battle. Blackface, yellowface, would that be redface then to go there with I, this? I, I, what, but it seems like that that's probably why he got lumped in with all those characters from the contest, the champion. Whenever they would try to do those Planet DC where they had like, or, or even, you know, uh, Global Guardian, where it's like, oh, we're going to identify them first by the country, nation, and or race that they hail from. So they put these overly obvious things where it's like Shamrock has like a green leotard and a big... Shamrock on her chest or whatever. You know what I mean? Like where it's like, it's just one of those things where you were supposed to identify it without putting too much thought into it, I think. It's a small world after all the ride turned into a comic book. I don't know a lot of the history of Contest of Champions, but my understanding is that part of the drive of that was that Marvel's selling in international territories and they're getting requests from those territories for superheroes from the fans there. And so they just hacked out these contrived heroes based on stereotypes of the individual nations. You talk to Siskoid about Alpha Flight. There's a lot of caricatures there, but it's still nice to have a whole 
home team at least. And so I guess on some mm. of these countries, if you've got nothing but Shamrock and Jack O'Lantern, you're like, well, at least I've got these guys, you know? <laughs> For me, I've never had any one single superheroic character that was Chickasaw, which is what my background is. But anytime I saw somebody, it was kind of like what you're talking about, like sort of a home team representation, you know, where you could be like, oh, cool. Like, that's awesome. I think that was, you know, at least for this character in particular, but also for like Wyatt Wingfoot or guys like Warpath and Thunderbird, you know, like different characters like that, that I would key in on and Puma even, you know, and I know some of those characters are not necessarily characters that you're fond of. But for me, that was always the standout for me because I think the only time I ever heard Chickasaw ever mentioned was in Jimmy Palmiotti Jonah Hex, where the tribe was mentioned as part of a story and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, cool. And that made me light up like No Tomorrow. And it was kind of like a recent comic and everything. But as far as this goes, to me, it's like that was one of those things where I could look at this character really honestly was introduced to the modern version. So I didn't really know too much about this version. And so I just kind of looked at it as a probably like Warren Ellis did. Like, I mean, he's kind of cracking jokes about this costume in the Thunderbolts appearance, but then also he doesn't kill it. Like he doesn't put two in the back of its skull and just bury it in the desert. He makes the comment. Yeah, this was a little wacky, this costume, Jason, like back in the day and his buddy that's talking to him. But then they smooth it over by saying, hey, look, man, it was a different time. I'm like, yes, I looked like I was going to the YMCA, but it was a different time. So it's like they kind of poke fun at it, but also say, hey, look, they were trying to do super heroic representation that also tied in with culture and they probably went a little overboard in retrospect. Just because you wore hammer pants in the 90s doesn't disqualify you from service for the rest of your life. You, you just chuckle and you move on, you know? It's not that big with you. Yeah, uh, just because just you had that one wackadoo haircut back in the day or you, you teased your hair up in the high school yearbook when you were trying to be a, a hot little teenage girl or something, you could still get away with having, like, you know, a nice normal haircut, like, 20 years later or yeah. whatever. Look, I'd never heard the word mullet until after I'd already had and lost one, so, you know, I can't <laughs> help that. I didn't know. Talking about, like, the modern representation of them, I don't know if you've ever read this series or not, but the... How do I phrase this? Because they reboot series so much. The post-initiative War Machine series was where Rhodey was part cyborg and stuff, and his face was all messed up, and he was going on a rampage fighting Norman Osborn as Hammer. He ends up putting up Rhodey's mom on his res, so she's got a home there and everything. And then when the fight comes to the Navajo reservation, then American Eagle has to get involved and everything. They have this cool throwdown with one another, and I don't know, Rhodey almost Batmans his Superman, I guess, in a way, you know, like Dark Knight Return style, but not that grim or clever, clever trickery type way and stuff. But then by the end of it, they team up and have a good send off with one another. I think that might have been one of those things where it's like, you know, dude who knocked Kazer out with one blow. He's got all this Marvel U cred that is not unearned, I think. It's not like he just showed up out of nowhere and started trouncing people per se. He's had a, a number of appearances as limited as they were. If you follow his trajectory of his superhero career, he actually made his bones. I think, you know, at least for me, you can move past a funky look. You can move past a dearth of appearances. So long as what you have out there has some quality to it, has some appeal to it. It sounds like that's what happened with this character. I haven't had a lot of exposure to him, but I don't disqualify him either. He seems basically from what you're telling me, he seems like a pretty cool dude. Definitely see the potential there. 
Fortunately, it doesn't look like they did way too much with him after Fear itself, I think, because he had a little backup strip in one of the miniseries in there. If I was going to point the highlights, try to twist your arm and convince you he's a cool character, the Thunderbolts Ellis run, I think he's in it for five issues, span of a trade, I think 112 to 116, he makes appearances in that. And then the Jason Aaron thing, I think was like a digital comic, and then it got collected later in a print comic, and it's just a little old-fashioned justice where like he basically fights with Cottonmouth from the Serpent Society. Like Cop- Cottonmouth ends up like on the res and he's got some girl hostage. So then it's like this kind of, I think it was like the Texas Twister and some of those initiative guys were like trying to hunt him down. But then again, once they were on Indian reservation territory, it's like out of their jurisdiction. So he's the superhero sheriff in that vicinity, you know, so he goes out to deal with Cottonmouth and stuff like that. Like th- and, and then that two, I think it's War Machine 6 and 7. That th- Those are the stories I'd point to, you know, other than maybe historically reading his first appearance to see where he hailed from. What's going on up there? Anaconda! Anaconda! As Odell Abner Dracula. Twitter's Adele Dracula's. Most of that stuff should kind of stand on its own terms. I mean, it's just goofy drawings of superheroes and zombies. So why'd you want to pick Anaconda of all the people? After reading the profile, I realized I didn't know as much about her as I thought. But the thing that stuck out about her is that she's Polish. Well, I'm assuming she's Polish just based on her name. And she looks like, I don't know if this is too much information, but she kind of looks like one of my aunts. Between that and the the Polish stuff, I thought, you know, she's as good as anybody else. I mean, who else is there in you got like Banachek, I think the bartender on the Simpsons, maybe that's about it. Meathead on All in the Family. I think most World War II movies had at least one Polish guy in each company, so you, you have to go for you. That's true. I think I might have been first introduced to her by the handbook. My memories of her are all mixed up with Dr. Dorcas and Atuma and all these Atlanteans, and I think it was just she had those scales and like the fins on her face I just kind of lumped her in with them and then it might have been the first in comic appearance might have been that X-Men installment of Atlantis Attacks I think she was in there with the Serpent Society that, the that Serpent sounds Squad. right I, I think I remember that I think it was like Neil Vokes or Mike Vosberg or somebody, somebody really random because the, the X-Men annuals I, I believe this is what that was the Uncanny X-Men annual they had developed this pedigree with Art Adams doing them and Alan Davis and all of a sudden you had this guy that just wasn't quite up to that level and it happened to be with Anaconda and the Servant Society there was a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't belong in this comic book is the way I felt when I read it yeah and they were hard that annual was when I might have been like the Outback time or right before the Outback time like the Siege Perilous stuff going on my friends and I in grade school we passed around those X-Men annuals and those New Mutant annuals and you know Alan Davis and Art Adams and it was really stuff we latched on to but then uh to read about the X-Men in that annual, it was just really hard to track. I think there might have been like a Jubilee backup story in there, too, or something. I don't know. It didn't make sense. And then they had that guy from Cloak and Dagger in it, too. Wasn't there a deal like one of the female X-Men had been possessed or mind-swapped or something and tried to have sex with Wolverine while they were in the other person's body? Am I remembering that right? Oh, boy. 
kind of probably what they were doing with the Atlantis attacks was set was trying to get seven brides. And so he was going around and he had his minions who I think it was some guy from like the Eternals or something who I didn't really know him either, but he was, they were trying to like draw in these superheroines who could stand to be in a relationship with Set and like bear his snake children or something really gross. And so it might have been like Marvel Girl was possessed by the snake demon or something like that. And there was a scene that played out like you were talking about. I love that you're saying that guy from the Eternals, which I'm pretty sure is the official description of every Eternal. Do they have yeah. individual names or it's always just, oh yeah, that guy, that Eternal guy. I, I think that's He's all. He's got a name you can't pronounce. It's like Gwar or Gwar or Gar or something like that. He's got, I mean, I could draw a picture of him, but I couldn't tell you how to pronounce his <laughs> dumb name. Do you recall what role Anaconda played in that one? There was a MacGuffin. Like, there was a magic statue that was going to help focus that manifestation in this plane was buried in Indiana or something, and then she just went with the Serpent Society to get it, and then they got their handed to him by the X-Men. I remember thinking that she had snake heads for hands, but I haven't been able to find that. They've got an image on the entry from an old Marvel 2-in-1. I think it might be her first appearance. If I remember correctly, there was a really distinctive cover. I think it might have been George Perez or maybe Perez Inks, where she's ensnaring the thing in her snake arms. When I first picked her, I thought that she had like snake heads, like little snake eyes and snake mouths on forehands, as opposed to having fingers and thumbs. I think that might be one of the Salem Seven, now that I think about it. Her handbook pictures, she has like flesh-colored fists, but like reading through this handbook entry, it says that Roxxon took out her arm and leg bones and put in adamantium snake skeletons inside of her limbs, basically, and that's how she can stretch and do all this nonsense, but anaconda. She's got snake powers and she can constrict you like, okay, cool. But then you think about like, oh, they put snake skeletons in their dang arms. And then you start to think like, well, can snakes really stretch? Because that the power that snakes have? I don't know. And then it all kind of starts to fall apart. I came into this thinking like, oh, yeah, Anaconda. Now that I gave the entry once over, like, what the heck, Anaconda? It got really kind of like a DC Silver Age vibe to it after reading this. Actually, the more you're, you're talking about it, the more I'm kind of into it. I, I'm, I'm trying to picture, I guess, the adamantium is telescoping. And so now I want to see the Elliot R. Brown diagram of what her skeleton would look like if it has all these little sections to it and stuff. I mean, I'm not a biologist, but I think that snakes are using their rib cage when they're doing that, too. And so does she have, like, hundreds of tiny adamantium ribs in her limbs? I don't understand how she puts herself back together after you stretch out like that. She'd be like an octopus lady. And then they make the point of saying when she extends her limbs in this fashion, the muscle tissue gorges with blood, swelling the limbs so that each looks like a massive, powerful snake, which is cool and everything. But uh, I'm old. I do stuff like I stand up too fast. The blood in my body doesn't all stand up with me. And I kind of go like, oh, ew. I don't know how she can wear her blood, how that works. You know, I think if you were like stretching giant limbs around Iron Man, she'd probably faint. That's one of those deals where sometimes you're better off not explaining it. That's absolutely in opposition to what Ohatmu is all about. It, it's all about trying to over-explain through just the most ridiculous pseudoscience how this could possibly work in a realistic world. Still, I, I don't know. I'm just I really enjoy them trying because it's just it's so much weirder to try to explain how her powers work than to just be like, oh yeah, her limbs become snakes. You know, right. And, and, I mean, that's and, the and, thing. That's, you can take it face value like oh her limbs become snakes so there you go that's power you can have 
but 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 the the detail they're trying to go to, the, the bizarre ways they're trying to figure out how this is supposed to work. I'm here for it. I think that might have been how I I went from like reading my dad and uncle's comics they left laying around into fandom was because of material like this where you're, you know it's like oh it's not just he gets bigger he shunts mass in from an extra dimension and now that's why he's Anaconda is not a character I, I tend to think a lot about. I don't come across her very often. She appears mostly, in my experience at least, in like Gruenwald, Captain America's, and not necessarily the ones that I gravitated towards like during some of the time periods where I wasn't super into it. So I, I've only ever really kind of brushed against her in terms of comic book appearances. But the more I look at her, the more I'm kind of intrigued by her because I like that she represents an atypical femininity. She's not like a sex pot and she's not right. pure muscle. It's like she still looks feminine even though she's well-muscled. Interesting to me because she doesn't look like anybody else. You're never going to confuse Anaconda with any other character because she's got so much unique stuff going on in her design. Because she looks like a cosmic character, but she's actually maybe a mid-level. And then you think, well, you know, she could be a jobber, but she's going up against the thing, so she's got to be pretty strong. I actually see a potential in her if, if she were to just work in a different weight class. Yeah, that was one of the other things I, where I was thinking about like, what's special about her. She's ahead of her time as far as showing this unique body type for a female character. I don't know if this is appropriate to talk about, but on that new Netflix, She-Ra, they've got all kinds of different body types and it feels like they go way out of their way to lean away from a toy line where it was the same exact body cast in the same exact action figure mold. They went and it's really a very diverse set of body types. If Anaconda's standing there with 30 other superhero women you're going to be able to pick her out you know just from her profile she's very much got like a master of universe belt going on which is not again yeah. to expect from this type of character definitely got the space gladiator thing going on yeah it's awesome it is a really cool belt it kind of looks like a snake wrestling championship belt yeah you even got like the little i mean it's supposed to be a serpent but you also have sort of these limb things coming off of it as well it's trippy yeah it's awesome the piece is drawn by mark Grunwald, who of course is best known as a writer and editor and he does a number of pieces in official handbook and marvel universe i guess in part because they probably wanted to keep the cost down and it was an opportunity for him to draw where it didn't come up too much i don't know if it was because of his skill or just speed a lot of times these guys just couldn't draw on a monthly basis this yeah. one's a little messed up in dimensions she seems a little like she's been compressed she doesn't have enough vertical but i think otherwise it's a pretty decent drawing it's fine i think the face looks like he swiped from burn something about the eyes and the way the lips are set but other than that it's all right there's another grunwald piece in here that i would swear would have been a frank miller at least in the way the face looks so there might be something to that it's not so bad i like her uh, atypical haircut everything about her is atypical i guess she's got scales on her face and fins on her jaw and all kinds of stuff but i mean she basically has well, pseudo sideburns or even a beard yeah I mean, it's pretty great. The more I think about it, the more I'm going to end up really liking her. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just got to take a character in isolation. She's pretty much always shown in a group environment, usually among the other Serpent Society members. Mr. Fixit's a big fan of Serpent Society, but for me, I find that when you have that many snake people all together, it, they just become kind of a mush. They all look like a bunch of Cobra Law rejects. But when yeah. you set some of them off the side, like I, I love uh, Constrictor, for instance, who sometimes run with those guys, but not too often. But yeah, sometimes you just got to set them off the side and get a look at them. He's like, this character has got more going for him than I think uh, they're giving credit for. I generally like the Serpent Society. 
I feel like every time I come across them, they throw in some kind of like a new random guy in there that I've never, you know, like, oh, is this this boom slang guy? Is he was he in there last time? You know, but I don't know. It seems like it might be a fun thing to do to test them at Serpent Society show up and then just throw one or two new guys in there for no reason other than they have a snake name. Like, oh, of course they showed up. Wow, I found my neighbor down the way. He's, he wants to be the new corn snake. So he's on the team now. You just pick up random guys as you go. They do seem to be a welcoming lot. Pretty much you, you've got a low bar to clear to get into the service society. They're not like the Nazi guys in the Sam Wilson Captain America series, are they? That was a different... Yeah, th- th- those are the Sons of the Serpent. Two whole different things, although they both turn up in Captain America comics. I didn't read that stuff yet, but I kind of glimpsed it online. Well, good. I'm glad she's not mixed up with them. We've got more than enough Nazis running around these days. We don't need to add to their numbers. Her origin is tied up with Roxxon and the Rand Corporation, or the is it Rand in real life? It's the Brand Corporation in the comics. I mean, that was way over my head back in the day, but that's all got a political component to it, you know? So on one hand, I like it. Ah, oh, you got to try to get away from that stuff. And on the other hand, the comics have always taken that and regurgitated it back out at you, even if you didn't understand it at the time. They've always had some political component to it. It's just that when you're a kid, you don't catch that stuff. And you read it as an adult, you're like, how did I not catch this stuff? Yeah, I remember where we were on a road trip somewhere and I saw an Exxon sign in real life. I was like, oh, my God, is that what? You know, it blew my mind that that was because I thought it was the Roxxon Corporation. It just blew me away. I thought it was some kind of fiction bleeding into reality. David A. Angar. Vocal cords exposed to experimental energy blasts shrunk the tumors that left him with a voice that triggers the central nervous system. Induces immediate catatonia with the slightest whisper. Angar, make it count. Angar. My name is Caroline Wells. I'm a huge comic book fan, both Marvel and DC, and I'm just a nerd working hard to become a voice actor. Have you read any comics featuring this character, or is it just the appeal of talking about somebody named Angar the Screamer? Actually, both. When you first look at him, he's like a very radioactive member of the village people. I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, with a name like Angar? Come on. Sometimes I forgot to put my head like Angar or Anger, because his superpower is like exotic screams that can mess with your head. So I don't know what to call him Anger or just Angar. Well, his first look. Oh, a very hippie, dippy social activist. Headband, long hair, vest, no shirt, braces on his arms, high pants or tassels on his little boots. Kind of like a 70s, a very, very radioactive, extreme activist from the 70s. Me personally, I know very little about this fella. I understand that he apparently ended up on Titan, which I think ties him in with Thanos and uh-huh. uh, uh, his extended family. I think he was mm-hmm. experimented on and he ended up getting unleashed against Daredevil and Black Widow. But I'm not sure this guy made much of an impression in his history and comics beyond being obviously overtly ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, he's comic books. You gotta make your mark somehow. But actually, yeah, he was exposed to the Titan formula, which helped him technically introduce to this form of Titan treatment through Rex's daughter, Moon Dragon, who was secretly trying to create a team to go against the Mad Titan Thanos. And Angar's treatment ended up giving him, like, 
something really, really special about the cords. You can especially scream, like supersonic scream, for about an hour, and you can only take a little bit of a break for breath. And the scream, it depends how close you are to him. Sometimes the person gets hallucinations. Sometimes you see enemies coming at you. Sometimes you see personal demons. And other times, it just makes your brain go yeah, and then you just pass out. Isn't he tied into the origins of Songbird from the Thunderbolts? Mm-hmm. Then he pulled well, they pulled almost like a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing where they did impersonate Hawkeye and Mockingbird for a little bit, but then they got caught you know, by Hawkeye and Songbird. They were a part of the team for like reformed bad guys, all through the team that you have to He's actually gotten multimedia attention too. You, I mean, it, it's a shame given his ties to Moondragon, he didn't make it into Infinity War or Endgame, but at least he got some play in Marvel Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'd forgotten all about that until looking into the character. What do you think about the artwork in the page? I mean, he just looks like your average Genevieve activist for, like, going against the man and maybe anarchy and just going against anything and, like, any form of rebellion almost. Yeah, I'm not sure the art gets across what he does, too. He just sort of has these wavy lines around his head. For all I know, he's just tripping. It's like a pose, like, hey! I think he took the brown acid. <laughs> this is another one of the pieces by Brian Postman. Not one of the most well-known artists. He, he did some odds and sods stuff for Marvel in this time period. I mean, it's solid. It's not terrible or anything, but it doesn't seem to live up to the name Angar the Screamer. Of Unfortunately, when he was with his partner, Screaming Mimi, who also has some sort of like chronic screams, 
day, Muhammad Abed one day said Angar got shot. They did manage to please things into like a wood, but Angar passed away from loss of blood. And Mimi just screamed for about an hour and leveled on the whole forest. But then, because we all know himself, Baron Von Zemo found him and her. And he was like, you know, come with me. I can fix your throat. Maybe I can fix your friend here. And then he did fix shooting Mimi's Official listeners of the Marvel Handbook Podcast are 20th Century Geek Pod, The 108 Sage, Adriano, Alphaflake.net, Andre79 Oliveira, Dr. Ange, Anthony Perconti, Batter Bally, Between the Pages, Bronze Age Babies, Castology Podcast, Chris, Chris Dunford, Christopher Bush, Collected Edition, Comics in the Golden Age, Constantine.Codsiris, Daniel French, Fishbonius Sound Design at Fishbonius, who added a baby Bruce Lee ripping stuffed dragon heart out gift dave's comic heroes blog debosh delvin dart web slash felix lighter doc strange dr g nerdologist doki doki hispanic dear Caston, who added a clapping girl gif couldn't place the reference ed moore eric borden who added love the marvel handbook single most awesome rich history development piece fan Hill's podcast fiendish fits the hammer strikes random geeky stuff history of comics on film into the weird iowa's joe crawford Jeff Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer DeRoss, John M. Wilson, Just in Time with the JNT Baggers, Carl, Carl Ottersberg, Casper Beaumont, Keith G. Baker, Kenny Crowley Jr., King Dinosaur, Kyle Benning Likes Pound Sign Avengers Comics, Lisa Franklin, The List Game, who included a Calvin and Hobbes gift, Mark Almoro Nicolau, Martin Gray, Matthew Wilkie, Marvel Universe Online, Michael Wagner, Mike, Micro Katinsky, Nexus of All, Nick Spence, Odell Abner Dragon, Omar, Paul K. Bisson, Paul Matthew Carr, P.B. Yoger, Ranger Gord, Resurrections and Adam Warlick and Thanos Podcast, Ryan Daly at Ryan Daly 01, who added, In my fanfiction slash head canon world of delight, AIM is the natural arch nemesis of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Also, I told you, I could have talked about the Alpha Primitives, but it would have sounded like I was saying Falcon a whole lot. Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Slime Word Resist, Stavenka Nike, Tim Price Podcrasher, Warlord Worlds, who added, Can't wait to listen, Weapon Extra, and Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace Podcast. Finally, this show has been very Jew-centric so far. We do have more women coming who are not robots, but we're always looking for more. Any ladies who are interested in participating in the Marvel Handbook should please contact us via the Rolled Spine Podcast email or Twitter. Frank doesn't Facebook if he can avoid it, and he usually can. All characters and concept 
objects appearing in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and the distinct likenesses thereof are the trademark and copyright of Marvel Entertainment, LLC, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. This has been a not-for-profit fan production from Rolled Spine Podcasts, with any copyrighted materials presented herein presumed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended.